one of the problems I had when I was talking to my boss, maybe a, a decade or so after we'd been working on what became high performance buildings, I said, I don't know what high performance is. I, I need a number to be able to say, well, is it 10% or is it 20%? He said, we'll come up with a new metric. I'm Wanda Lau, Editorial Director of Smart Buildings Technology. If you work in any profession that uses or conducts building energy modeling, you have probably heard of Energy Plus. On this episode of the SBT podcast, I'm excited to talk with Drew Crawley, one of the original creators of that Department of Energy's open source energy simulation program, which serves as a backbone for many modeling platforms today. We won't be focusing on Energy Plus, which might make for a tough listening experience. Instead, Drew will be reviewing the progress of smart buildings from when he first joined a DOE research initiative 40 years ago in 1982 to, quote, develop the scientific and technical understanding of how building subsystems interact with each other and with occupants and the environment, end quote. Sound familiar? Today, Drew is a Washington, D.C.-based Bentley Fellow and the Director of Building Performance Research, focusing on topics such as zero-energy buildings, digital twins, and smart cities. Prior to joining Bentley, Drew was at the DOE, not only overseeing Energy Plus, but also its commercial buildings initiative. If you want a history of energy efficiency and sustainability research in the US, you can review Drew's more than 125 publications and 400 presentations on those topics. Thank you for coming on this show, Drew. Thank you for inviting me. In reference to your 1988 paper with Carol M. Gardner, titled Commercial Building Systems Integration Research. In 1982, the U.S. Department of Energy started the Commercial Building Systems Integration Program to further the, quote, scientific and technical understanding of how building subsystems interact with each other and with occupants and environments, unquote, with the goal of improved energy efficiency across the building life cycle. Essentially, what would become known as high-performance smart buildings can you describe the ideas behind this prospect at the time? And did this vision seem far-fetched? It didn't at the time because we knew that building systems work together already, but we really hadn't been doing research in that area. The idea was to look beyond individual components. We knew we could make efficient windows, but how do the windows interact with the other systems? Daylight coming in through a window uh, can affect the lighting system if you have controls for daylighting, and that in turn affects the heating and cooling amounts needed. So it was important to understand how all that fit together and could we take advantage of that? And that, that really was the focus of that research. Was there a lot of initial work already leading up to your work as a continuation of other work or was it really just breaking new ground in this area? It was sort of breaking new ground. We hadn't, uh, the Department of Energy had not done a lot of work research in that area. They had a very strong windows program, a very strong HVAC and other, and, you know, building envelope and insulation and lighting, of course. Uh, but they hadn't really begun to look at how do we put it all together. And that that was kind of the, the beginning of that. The work was a bit slow there. We weren't quite sure what building integration was and really trying to do that. So we did a, a number of exploratory projects trying to look at opportunities? Could we set energy targets? Could we do specific HVAC configurations embedded in the structure? All sorts of different things we looked at. 
in that paper, you had identified four primary obstacles to the idea of a smart building, including, quote, unplanned and unknown interactions among building subsystems, uh, end quote, limited availability of energy performance data for designers, lack of user-friendly energy analysis tools, and uh, the owner's preference for marketable buildings over energy efficiency. I wanted to review the progress and changes you've seen on each of those factors since then. Starting with the first one, unplanned and unknown interactions among building subsystems, such as lighting, envelope, HVAC, as you mentioned. How, is, how have we progressed our knowledge? We know a lot more now. We have tools that allow us to look at that. We had some software that would help uh, do evaluation back in the 80s, but it really wasn't focused on looking at the interactions in, in the detail that we can today. So we've learned a lot of things about uh, how to improve uh, all, all of that, particularly with controls. Controls and digital controls were somewhat in their infancy at that point, and now uh, they're pretty ubiquitous. There's lots of really cool stuff happening out in the market with wireless controls. I think that's just going to change everything the, uh, moving forward. Uh, the ability to get information inexpensively back and be able to act on it. Professor I know at Carnegie Mellon used to say that we have more controls and sensors in the cars we build than we do in our buildings. And part of it is for a car, you're building something that's factory built and automated and you're building more than one of. And for our buildings, we tend to build one or two. They're not usually the same. We, we change them as we're, we're going on. But also controls have been historically very expensive. The device itself is not that expensive, but running a wire back to a central system has been. And 5G has a lot of promise there to be able to get that instantaneous response. I think buildings are a little bit behind some of the other uses in smart cities, but I think that that's, that's gonna give us the ability to have, to, to have more of a mesh instead of a single sensor point to see what the temperature is and then act on it. We're gonna be able to have lots of different information flowing in to be able to control them differently. Do you find that because Many times the building systems are provided by different manufacturers in completely different sectors. Do you find that there, there's more integration or just information flow and exchange? There have been a number of steps forward in that. Uh, BACnet is one example. It's the ability to allow controls to talk to each other, systems to talk to each other. But they are really getting us beyond that if you buy my system, then you have to talk to me about programming it. You have to talk to me about changing sensors. You can't buy a new sensor from somebody else. And that really has hampered development in this area. A second obstacle you identified was the availability of energy performance data for subsystems, meaning manufacturer technical specifications. Has even the manufacturer's ability to test and even know how the product performs? Substantially, there are uh, some industry standards that are are being set to make it easy to share performance data in a consistent way, different subsystems and, and even system level. And that has made it a lot easier to, to be able to understand and to compare how different tools. I can remember back before this work that you're talking about was working with a, a large corporate headquarters building and the 
Chiller manufacturers did not want to share the information about the efficiency of their equipment, not just the point efficiency, which is published, but we needed the curves to see how they interacted with the building systems. So part of the construction contract was, if you want the work, you had to provide the curves. And that, that was kind of the only incentive we had back then. Really some of the market demand for transparency has helped change some of the attitude. It is, it is. And I think the manufacturers have realized that they're gonna get better if they're playing on a level playing field that their marketing can deal with their performance rather than dealing with potential hype. And along with that note on the availability of data, have you found that more data has become available on commercial buildings in operation, such as through the DOE's building performance database? The building performance database is quite good, um, but the, the one thing that I think is really transforming some of the cities, there is benchmarking required in a number of the large cities. 25 of the largest cities in the U.S. now require building owners to provide their monthly bills on an annual basis for electricity, water, gas, other fuels, and that can be transformative because suddenly you can get a picture of a city and see why is that building over there using twice as much energy as this one across the street? What's going on in there? It, it's leading up to a number of some of the larger cities already considering building performance standards, where if you don't meet a, a set performance level as measured by your utility bill, then you're going to start paying penalties. And New York is already uh, doing that. I find there's a lot of movement and momentum at the local level. Maybe it's just more flexible. Yes. Oh, very much, very much. A third obstacle you identified was the lack of user-friendly energy analysis tools that consider multiple variables, including cost and interactive systems, system performance. And that's kind of near and dear to my heart because energy, energy analysis tools kind of been a lot of my career. At the point this paper was written in the late 80s, there were a number of tools out there. Some of them were friendlier than others. Some of them didn't go into the building physics as well as, as uh, they might have. Subsequently, in the, the mid-90s, we began developing a new tool trying to build from the best of what DOE had done and what the Department of Defense had done. And so that became a tool that's now the underlying calculational engine for at least a half a dozen user-friendly tools. That, that has transformed pretty well in the last decade. It took a long time to get there though. And then the fourth obstacle was owner interest in green buildings over other priorities. <laughs> well, think about it. You're a, whatever sort of business you are, maybe you're a law firm, you just want the building to work. And it's kind of a cost of doing business. And frankly, the cost of doing business is primarily in your people. So you want them to be healthy and happy and comfortable uh, so they can be productive. 100 to 1, that the cost of the employees compared to what we pay for energy in our buildings is just not, you know, energy's cheap. Even the days we're seeing now with uh, gas prices zooming up, uh, it's still pretty cheap. And they're going to focus on things that are going to affect employee productivity and, and activity rather than thinking about other things. Now, there are enlightened ones out there because 
you do see particularly large owner operators that are interested in in green buildings and in energy efficiency and some of the large uh, big box retailers they can see how much energy use is going on in any of their buildings worldwide partly because it's such a huge expense for them given their scale and so for them small changes spread throughout hundreds of stores can really lead to bottom line, but not not everybody does today. If you think about it, buildings are not their business and um, that's that's a real challenge for them. And also that that affects their idea about rate of return. For their business, they be, might be willing to consider 10 to 20% return, but for something that's uncertain to them, that's why you see people saying, I won't do anything less than a three-year payback. I would love to get a 30% return on my money. Agreed. But they don't know. They, you know, it's just too much uncertainty for them. Do you find that the U.S. Green Building Council's lead program helped with making it more of a public marketing statement? It does. It does. It can be transformational. I remember talking with some of the real estate people in New York, and they had finally convinced the real estate brokers that a lead gold building was more comfortable and all the other attributes that the owners were looking for. And so it was worth a premium. And that took a long time for them to get out to the right people. Most people that are uh, trying to do the compliance with lead, they're not the ones selling the building. These are the ones you know, designing or managing or operating. It, it is a challenge, but it is, it's improving. Now, moving forward a decade, you wrote a series of papers around 2000 outlining the DOE's Office of Building Technologies 20-year roadmap for commercial buildings. And that also reads like it was written just yesterday. But in the roadmap, you call for flexible integrated systems to offer wireless control. Operators that help develop and are trained to use these technologies and, quote, intelligent systems that essentially allow a building to run itself, end quote, and a, quote, self-learning building management system, end quote, that will allow for real-time monitoring and control of energy, IAQ, comfort and pollutants. Now in 2022, is the technology where you expected it to be? Wow, I hadn't thought of that as being 20 years ago, but I think we're a long ways toward that. Uh, I think there are a lot of act things, particularly in the on the smart side that are beginning to make it possible to reach that uh, reality. Again, the, the issue of controls and their costs for hardwire, it still remains an issue. So we can't get lots of sensors. I'm hoping that's that's continuing to change. We are now seeing a lot more interest in some of the AI, particularly machine learning, deep learning uh, systems that can do that work and provide maybe not decisions, not self-automated decisions, but can provide guidance to the people who are operating the buildings. Another good trend I've been seeing over the last 20 years, I guess, is the fact that our building operators are no longer somebody who has said, oh, you just need to make sure the building's operating okay. What I'm seeing now is with larger uh, groups that have multiple uh, buildings in a portfolio, they may have an operator that's responsible for 5, 10, 20 buildings. So they are you know, trained in the systems. They know they can identify issues long before they, they cause uh, problems. And they are using these sorts of systems that are providing centralized information that wasn't available at, at 20 years ago. When you were thinking about this roadmap, 
were some of the fundamental research behind these technologies already there? Like how, how could you foresee like intelligent building systems that would essentially allow the building to run themselves or wireless controls? Did you see some basic research that was going on? There was some research. I can remember, you know, hearing from various organizations that they were trying to do wireless controls and how do we get the wireless device charged? Because that that's often one of the issues. But interesting things that were using sound vibrations or radio waves or uh, even uh, just the ambient light to, to charge themselves. You know, one of my favorite authors, Stuart Brand, uh, has a, a book, How Buildings Learn, What Happens After They're Built. That is kind of an intriguing book. My favorite part of it is the cover. He's got uh, two buildings built in New Orleans in 1857, and he shows what they look like in 1991, and they're totally transformed. You wouldn't know that they were essentially identical buildings. And his whole thesis through that book is we influence our buildings the moment we start using them, that we change them, we make them what we need to do. But the, the quote I love from the book, and I think it applies to a lot of different aspects about building design versus as operator performance, is every building is a forecast and every forecast is wrong. And it's just, uh, you know, encapsulates the thing that we assume when we design something, that that's how it's going to be operated. And it's just not the case. Uh, actually, that takes us to the next question. Um, and also in that roadmap, you had called for a team approach to the way that buildings are conceived, built, and operated. So IPD, or Integrated Project Delivery, has addressed uh, in part the first half of the building process, which is design and construction. But have you seen the collaboration extending to the building operations after the project is handed off? In uh, many of the more successful buildings, what you're seeing is that integrated project delivery is not only designers and the contractors, it also includes the stakeholders and the operators and the building managers who may have great ideas about how we can do something less expensive and more efficiently that would help them operate the building the right way. And that is kind of a key feature when you're trying to really push building efficiency. One of the problems I had when I was talking to my boss, maybe a, a decade or so after we'd been working on what became high-performance buildings, I said, I don't know what high-performance is. I, I need a number to be able to say, well, is it 10% or is it 20%? He said, well, come up with a new metric. So working with the researchers, we, we said, we think we can set a target of net zero energy for commercial buildings and be able to reach that by 2030. There is actually part of the legislation that was that came out of not too long after that was pushing some of the same ideas. We did a study, we found it technically could be done. There were a lot of other barriers, but net zero is, is a lot easier to understand, I think, than high performance. And that, that's kind of why we evolved that way. And then did your research, do you know, that, is that what drove some of the, like the Architecture 2030 organization and also the American Institute of Architects has the 2030 commitment all targeting net zero for 2030? I think it did. I think uh, showing that it tech, you know, is a technical achievement that could be done and then Architecture 2030 and AIA's commitment translated that into operational things that could be done by their membership. And that was really important. The DOE's research has continued in that area. They've produced a number of guides to get to 50% energy savings. And recently, uh, working with ASHRAE and other organizations, 
have been producing uh, net zero energy guides for, for buildings. And we're seeing buildings out there operating. There's a national lab building at the National Renewable Energy Lab that's been operating at zero energy for a decade. This is the one in Colorado? Yeah. And I know you currently work at Bentley Systems, which offers an array of software solutions for infrastructure design and delivery, including a platform for digital twins. So I'm sure your expertise has been vital to advancing this work. At Bentley, uh, I'm part of the research office and we do a number of things. I'm working with four universities right now, several of which we are sponsoring research PhDs and working with them on various aspects of buildings and building performance. Digital twins has gotten to be one of those buzzwords that everybody wants to do a digital twin. Tying in the controls, being able to, to have real-time uh, display of information and being able to use it to, to look at some of the smart buildings, things that we were uh, looking at before. Can you talk to me a little bit more about digital twins? Are people open to them? Do you anticipate a gradual adoption rate such as that was for BIM? I think it'll be faster because one of the, the beautiful things about Digital Twin, it's not a single platform. It's not a single way of getting there. If you have a BIM model, that can be part of a Digital Twin. That could be the starting point. It should be essentially alive as built for, for use later. I also see people calling what they do Digital Twins when all they're really doing is like you can do in Google Maps and Google Earth is just extrude the building and get a, a basic shape. And a digital twin is so much more than that. We need to have representations of you know, what the materials are, how the building's structured, and even into the interiors. There's a great group uh, working on that, of which Bentley's part, uh, the Digital Twin Consortium. You'll see a lot of big player names in, in that, all interested in what they can do. Because the Digital Twin is not just buildings. It's just about anything of the built environment out there today that can be represented in 3D. I think cities are a big driver right now for that. Also, places that are looking to do large-scale rehabilitation, maybe for energy efficiency, decarbonization. There's a, a model of the city of London that's been able to do that. And they brought together information from multiple data sites. So they have tax records, they have energy use, they have all sorts of things. So they know exactly what's going on in each building and being able to say, well, let's target the worst 10% and see if we can start there. And it's, so it's a way of trying to take data they already have and, and make it useful. Do you see that it's easy for non-designers or non-engineers to navigate through digital twins or to extract data, data from it? Oh, yeah, I, it is. Because I think it's the, the idea is try to make data available um, at a in a way that makes sense so that you can, it looks like the physical world. It's sort of like, I don't want to call it metaverse, but it's sort of like that, but it's real. This represents something real, not a, an alternate universe. It's a way of being able to look at something that makes sense to you because you know what the real world object actually looks like. So tell me about this new software by Bentley that is tracking LCA. You know, we just introduced a add-on to our work in the digital twin, the iTwin, the platform that we have, 
and as working with a group called uh, One Click LCA, and they, because they're one of the leading groups worldwide, tying that with uh, the objects that we have through the iTwin, that we now can very quickly get information about environmental impact of whether it's a building or whether it's road, rail, any of the large infrastructure. It's, uh, you know, it's being brought together by a group called ESDG Ambassador. So talking about the environmental sustainability development goals that the UNs have and how Bentley's products can help influence to let our users take advantage of them. Where does technology draw the information from to calculate the LCA, the life cycle analyses? There, there are databases of, of information by locality, and locality, I mean, broad regions, about the environmental impact. That's been underway for quite a while. Europe, in many respects, had, had more of a head start on us, but there is a life cycle inventory project here in the U.S. that's been doing the uh, same sort of information. That's kind of my day job sort of thing. On the other side, I work with ASHRAE. I'm on the ASHRAE board right now. Um, and I have been one of the leads on working groups for uh, ASHRAE's new task force on building decarbonization. There are 150 people working toward providing the information, but also generating new ideas about how do we get to decarbonize our buildings and what are, are the ways that we do that. So stepping back and looking at the building industry, what do you hope and expect to see in the next 20 years? The biggest issue for us is really beginning to embrace the IoT and the other aspects of being able to deal with the data that's coming available. The biggest challenge for that part of the industry is how do we protect the data? I can't tell you how many times I've gotten your email has been hacked. And so how are we going to protect this data, which could be potentially sensitive because you're, you're talking about how people interact in a building or, or maybe as a large group, but also it, it's private to the, the owners of the information and we need to be able to do that. So we need to solve that problem. And once we do that, IoT and, and some of the other opportunities around smart buildings and digital twins fall in place very easily. For then some of the cities that are posting building data, are there ways that they're keeping the information secure? One of the ways we can deal with security is make sure that it's not tied to something so specific time-wise that it's there. So they're posting monthly data uh, or annual data for that. It, and it's public. It should be public knowledge about how do people operate. And I think it's one of the underlying things about some of the rating systems that we've seen, like Energy Star that it's important that people understand that the building they're about to lease is a 75, not a 95. And that's gonna affect their bills. It's been very effective in Europe to be able to, to have a labeling. You know, If it's an A quality building, you know you're gonna probably get a comfortable building that doesn't cost a lot for utilities. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Smart Buildings Technology Podcast with me. Thank you so much for inviting me. I had fun thinking back through the last 40 years. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Smart Buildings Technology Podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please leave us a review and hit our subscribe button.